Father, we thank you for your presence with us in all the times of life. And we thank you for your presence with us now. Open our ears to your word and our eyes and our minds to the power of the Holy Spirit and the risen Christ. Amen. Fifty years ago, the award-winning French filmmaker Albert Lamaurice created a revolutionary game that he called, and uh, I said to Jean-Louis earlier, you have to pardon my French, La Conquête des Mondes. He tried to help me pronounce that. Translated, The Conquest of the World. And uh, then based on Lamaurice's game, two years later, 1959, Parker Brothers published this game that we now know as Risk. Now, Risk is played on a board that uh, depicts a Napoleonic-era map of the world. 42 territories divided into six continents. And as the game progresses, armies grow and change, and, and you're trying to take over territories until eventually the goal of the game is to control all the territories and destroy your opponent and win the game that way. Now, since 1959, there have been dozens of variations, about a dozen variations of this game, Risks, not as many as some of the others that we've encountered. And they've mapped out epic battles in the Star Wars universe, Middle Earth, Narnia, the moon, uh, various periods in world history. There have been several computer and video game versions of Risk that have been released, starting with the Commodore 64 edition in 1988 and the Mac edition in 1989 to the present day where this game is available on virtually every one of the gaming systems that are played. Now, I have to tell you up front that I have never actually played the game of Risk. I know that's going to sound sacrilegious to some of you, but I I have not played the game of Risk. But I've watched people play, and I've listened to some of your stories about playing, and it's very clear to me that this quickly can become a very intense game to play. One was telling me earlier that a number of years back they were part of a uh, college and career group. And uh, they had a Bible study every week. And then they started meeting another night for play games. And they started playing Risk every week. And one week this guy became so upset with the person, he, an opponent, that he called him names that the church group kids had never heard before. And they were all kind of surprised by that. Uh, and another guy on a different day was so upset about what was happening in the game, he just picked up the board and dumped it over sideways. And I think that put it into the game as he walked out. Cindy and her parents told me, tell me that uh, years ago, when Cindy was younger, they, they were playing Risk at the home of a friend, and, and uh, the game was over, and this friend lost. And, and he was so upset about losing that he picked up the board, the box, the pieces, the dice, the cards, everything, and he threw it into the roaring flames of the fireplace. All of it. That's an intense player, an intense game. Fortunately, it was his board, so that made it okay, I guess. But that's why Parker Brothers calls it the World Conquest Game. It's a take-no-prisoners, mow-em-down, to increase your own odds of victory kind of game. It's survival of the fittest. You, You get strong by eliminating the weakest opponents. And you search out who's the weakest, and you go after them, and you take their territory, and you keep doing that around the board. Now, I suspect that if you know anything about risk, that you might have that idea in mind for the sermon today, as if you came in, you saw the the game set up here. And there's certainly things that we could say about that kind of cutthroat competition, and applies how we live our lives and how we treat each other as Christians. 
But that's not the direction that I want to take today. What I really want to talk about is, is this, this whole concept of risk. And, and specifically the call to risk. And what it means to us as followers of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that risk is at the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. It doesn't matter how young or old we are. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible we know or don't know. It doesn't matter how long or brief a time we have been a follower of Jesus. God is continually calling all of us, all of us, to risk. Now, I think it's important to understand, because I think sometimes this is confusing, it's important to understand that risk comes more naturally for some people than it does for other people. And, and we all have different areas where we're more comfortable risking than we might other areas. And those people are more comfortable in those areas than some of our areas. Research has discovered that people are in, in some way genetically predisposed to be risk takers. The brains of some people are not very sensitive to adrenaline and other stress modulators. And so they live with a, with a lot of a substance called GABA, G-A-B-A, it's gamma amino butyric acid. And they, these people acquire vast amounts of risk just to keep from being bored. Now, the people at the other end of the genetic, uh, of genetics who are predisposed to be risk avoiders, their brains are extremely sensitive to adrenaline. They have low levels of GABA. They wrestle with worry a lot more. They, they may feel more anxiety about going to a party and having to engage in small talk And people at the other end of the extreme might feel if they jumped out of an airplane. It's just how we're wired to some degree. And of course, there are people in between. But what we need to understand is that God is not so concerned about that. God takes us where we are, and he calls us to be more than we are. So just because you might be genetically wired to be a risk taker doesn't necessarily mean that that you are doing exactly what God wants you to do. It could just mean you have more GABA. I mean, I have known people that I, I came to the conclusion that they were addicted to risk. They, they just never felt comfortable or, or, or settled unless they were hang gliding in Monterey or, or slaloming 100 miles an hour down the Matterhorn you know, or... or um, trying to bungee jump off the Brooklyn Bridge or, or babysitting a, a, a dozen four-year-olds that have just gotten into the stash of Halloween candy. I mean, they, they, they just are always wanting to take a risk and, and they don't seem settled unless they're taking a risk. But on the other hand, just because you might be more of a risk avoider than these people we look at as thrill seekers doesn't mean you're necessarily inferior spiritually either. Our call is not to risk like other people risk. It's simply to risk as God leads us to. And we understand that that the risk, however God designs it for you or for me, that that risk and being willing to take the risk is what's central and imperative for every Christ follower. Now, all you have to do is is look back at the the pages of Scripture and and you see that the story of God's people is a litany of risk-taking. Abraham, Hebrews tells us that Abraham doesn't know where he's going or when he's going to get there or what route he's going to take on the journey. 
but he goes. Because something in him knows that if he's a follower of God, he's got to take a risk. And as he stands at the burning bush and, and, and hears God call him to, to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, Moses has a lot of questions for God. What if the people don't believe me? What if they don't really think that you sent me? What if Pharaoh turns against me? And you know, God, I'm not real good at speaking either. But eventually, Moses goes. Because something in him realizes that if he's going to be a follower of Yahweh, you've got to take steps of risk. And Acts 4 tells us that Peter and, and John are, are arrested and, and they're threatened and warned not to preach again. And what do they do? They say... We can't help it. We're going out to preach. And they go out to preach because something in them knows that as they're a follower of Christ, you've got to take risks. And Paul talks about many people in the church who risk their lives in order to assist him in ministry. People who put their own necks on the line in order to help Paul, to be connected to Paul, to be associated with Paul. And why do they do that? Because something in them realizes that if they're going to be a Christ follower, you take risks. God is always, always, always calling us to risk about something. Because risk is about faith and trust, and God is always calling his people to deeper levels of faith and trust. Some of the risks that we we anticipate or, or think about our stuff we would call monumental. Go to the cities of Saudi Arabia and stand in the street corner and preach the gospel. Go to Antarctica and preach the gospel. Or go, go into the heart of the city and preach the gospel or go out into the middle of the country and preach the gospel. Some of those things are monumental for us. Huge, life-changing decisions. But I suspect most of the, the risks to which God is calling us are more of the mundane, everyday variety risks. And typically, those, those risks that we consider less exotic are actually more important because they prepare us for the more monumental risks. No one's going to take those kind of monumental leaps unless they've been making day-by-day -day kinds of risks but also because those small everyday risks are indicative of, of how we live and of who we are and what's central to us. Maybe the immediate risk for you is simply doing something that, uh, that disturbs your carefully planned schedule. Maybe, it's, maybe you need to risk in order to, to, be, uh, to go to another person and, and, and humbly work at mending a relationship that's been spiraling downward. Be honest and take a chance on being rejected. Maybe it's something as simple as, as going into the lunchroom and, and, and finding someone who's sitting alone or, or someone who's not a part of the cool group and sitting with them, even though you're dying to be a part of the cool group. Maybe it's to speak when you really want to be quiet. Maybe it's to be quiet when you really want to speak. Maybe it's confronting a conflict or, or problems with grace and kindness and integrity instead of anger and arrogance and impatience. Maybe it's being vulnerable with another person about 
your own struggles, your hurts, your imperfections, knowing, letting them see you as you really are, acknowledging how often you fall short and, 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 and how you continually need help, being vulnerable. I don't know exactly what the risk will be, but I know it will be something. And it will not be easy, because if it was easy, it wouldn't be a risk. John Orberg says, you, you may have noticed that very rarely in the Bible, if ever, does God bother to interrupt someone's life in order to ask them to do something easy. He doesn't appear to be terribly interested in making sure we're comfortable. He goes on to say God wouldn't make a very good flight attendant. But here's the thing that, whatever those risks may be, the one thing I do know, I think there is an element of life that God is going to call all of us and is calling all of us. And that is to take the risk to see life and to live life in surrender and self-sacrifice and to view success with a different set of values than we are typically trained and tempted and accustomed to see. I think for most of us in this country, our greatest struggle and therefore our greatest risk is to believe that the way of Christ is the way for us. That God's plan for changing the world and for influencing the world is really the right plan. That the risk to which God calls all of us is to believe that more will be accomplished in this world for Christ through surrender and sacrifice and love and death than through power. And I suspect that even as you're hearing that right now and you're struggling in your mind about it, as as I do, that it reveals how deeply ingrained we are in the mindset of this world. The world's mindset is safe. It's logical. It makes sense to our natural way of thinking. But the kingdom of God is not about our natural way of thinking. It's about something radically different. A radical risk. To believe that the world will be changed and transformed only when Christ's followers think less of rights and more of surrender. To really believe that Christ's plan worked. That giving up rights as opposed to grasping rights really did change the world. Isn't that the heart of the incarnation and the cross? And you think if that's God's strategy for his eternal son... Strategy would be any different for us? You think God has changed his strategy for the 21st century? It's a radical mindset, and, and honestly, it's a risky mindset. It costs the eternal son his life. But that's what love does. Love risks because love believes that the world will be changed not by power or legislation or elections or any of the other human-designed plans. Love knows that the world will be changed only when God's people are humble and loving and compassionate and self-sacrificing like Christ. Now we're talking about risk. Radical, imposing, stick-out-your-neck kind of risk. I suspect in hearing that, we feel not unlike the disciples. felt when they heard Jesus say, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first, be your slave. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's so hard because the radical nature of surrender rather than power, of kindness rather than revenge, of love rather than hate, it's not a fast-acting solution. And we are enamored with fast-acting solutions. When we think of changing the world, we have that vending machine mentality. I'll put in my dollar, push the button, and the world has changed. But God doesn't work that way. In fact, when has God ever rushed about anything? God's not concerned about how fast we might want to change people or change the world. He's concerned about us being people who look like Christ and act like Christ. And then we leave the outcome and the timing to him. And that's a risk because we all want it to happen now. And we find it difficult because to see because our impatience is rooted, honestly, in an uncertainty that God really knows what he's doing. That God's plan and God's ways are wiser and higher and better than ours. And we struggle with that. Because it doesn't look the way we want it to look. We know it's the right plan. We know that God calls us to be risk takers because we worship the great risk taker. I mean, God is a risk taker. What a risk to create human beings in his image. People who can either choose him or reject him. What a risk to to put his finger on on a a group of people who were slaves in Egypt and say, okay, you're mine now. And they could either reject him or accept him. What a risk to, to send his eternal son into this world to be a human being and to be born in the most fragile environment of a woman's womb. What a risk to believe that a cross could change the world. What a risk to entrust the gospel to the disciples and to human beings through the ages. It's all a risk. God is the great risk taker. He's calling us to be risk takers too. That's what the incarnation the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, it's what it's all about. God risking and calling us to risk as well. And I know it often doesn't make sense to us. It's a strategy that's difficult to really get into our minds because it's so unnatural to the way the rest of the world operates. Ben and Christine Hageman are are in Benin. They're going to be coming home in a week or so. And this week, Ben sent out an email. Some of you may have received it, describing some of the circumstances in this African nation that's predominantly Muslim. And in this letter, he wrote, no one lives more dangerously than Jesus. No one. His death proves it. So does the death of all but one of his apostles. Muhammad gave his jihad disciples a sermon and a sword, but Jesus equipped his disciples with the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit. And that is far more dangerous. Imagine a Messiah who raises gospel lambs and then sends them among human wolves. 
All our rational education has trained us to say, yeah, right. Can chickens evangelize the foxes? Can pigeons preach to cats? Can sheep be apostles among lions? Can tuna fish share the good news with sharks? I love that we've been right. Actually, yeah. There's a God who can cause the lion to lay down with the lamb. The child to pick up a cobra because the spirit of God overpowers the forces of evil and the sinful human hearts. What a dangerous and risky way to live. Now, risk is a, is a strategy-intensive game. But, it, but it's also a, a game of chance because you roll the dice. And, and that's how you determine who wins the battles. I mean, you do your best to prepare your army. You do your best to get everything in position. You, you think about the, the, uh, the probabilities of, of the dice. And then you take a chance. And you pick them up and you roll them. And the outcome of the battle is determined by the roll of the dice. And we have a tendency to want to hold on to the dice. We're afraid of losing. We're afraid that we'll be hurt or embarrassed or rejected or worse. But if life's just about avoiding bad outcomes, then we miss so much of what God has for us. We never win any battle. And I think a lot of our hesitancy is rooted in our fears. We're fearful that we'll fail or fearful of what people will think about us or fearful the whole thing's going to snowball out of control and, and we won't be able to keep our handles on it anymore. And so fear gets a hold of us and it blinds us and it chains us and it keeps us cowering in the corner of life and, and we do nothing. People use different strategies to win the game of risk. And again, as I said, I've not played, but I read a lot and talked to a lot of people. Stephen Joris was telling me that about playing risk years ago and he said he played with two groups of people. One group were some friends of his brother, a place where he worked. And he said, I don't think any of them were Christians. But they played with a very aggressive style. They were always taking risks. You had to watch your borders every moment because they were wanting to, to take all kinds of risks continually. He said, you really, had to, you really had to stay with it. So I also played with a group at church, and, and they tended to play a lot more safely. They were slow. They took their time. Very few people took risks. And, and, and I don't know that uh, our faith has anything to do with your strategy for playing the game of risk, and maybe his experience was an anomaly, but it got me thinking that it isn't all that uncommon that Christ people are known as people who just want to be safe. Isn't that the problem Jesus addresses in the parable of the talents? The master commends the servants who take a risk, even though they could have lost everything. And the master condemns the servant who goes and buries his talent in the ground, even though there was no way of losing it. And Jesus' message is clear. It's far better to risk with God and to lose than not to risk with God and never have a chance to win. In fact, I think Jesus is saying, if you don't risk, you've already lost. And sometimes we think that God, all right, we'll take a risk, but I know that I'll do that because I know God would never ask me to do anything that I'm scared to do, or God would never ask me to do something that, that I couldn't handle. Are you kidding me? That's God's modus operandi. 
That's the whole point. He's asking us to do things that scare us. He's asking us to do things that we can't handle because then we have to trust him. And in trusting God, we begin to realize that there is freedom in trusting God. There is joy in trusting God. It's not a coincidence that Jesus came and said, I want you to be people who take risks. And oh, by the way, I've come to give you joy. Those two things go hand in hand. It's only when we risk, only when we trust God, that we begin to experience the freedom of living with God. Because we're just letting things go, and putting them in his hands. But that's the issue. Are we ready and willing to put things, our lives, our decisions, who we are, how we live, are we willing to put that all into God's hands? Do we really believe that he can handle it? That he'll take care of it? That he's trustworthy? In the end, that's really the crux of the matter. Most of the time when things are going on during the service, particularly when I'm preaching, I really am not paying all that much attention to it unless we really need to. I don't know how many times through the years uh, someone has come to me after church and said, uh, I'm sorry, my husband, it's almost always the husband, fell asleep during church today. And I'd say to them, that's okay, I didn't notice, but thanks for telling me that. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, I really, I honestly, most of the time don't pay that much attention and, and I don't pay that much attention when, when children are having trouble either. And I know as a parent, it's hard. You know, you, you try to watch your children. You try to keep them quiet and occupied. And sometimes they aren't. And people, again, come to apologize. That's, that's okay. That, that's what children do. I'm just glad we have children. That's all right. Don't worry about it. And most of the time, it's, it's no big deal. But I remember particularly one Sunday morning, I don't know, 15 or more years ago. We still lived in Wisconsin. And, and there was a, a young couple that had two or three children. They were small, and they were sitting right down here in the front. And their oldest child, who was probably three or four, was not having a good morning. The whole service, he was just having trouble. He was, he was whining, and he was talking, and he was crying, and you know, he, he was making, banging stuff around. And, and the parents were trying everything they could to, to get him settled. You know, they brought things from the dew and the color and draw whatever, and none of it was working. And not only that, he was starting to talk a lot, as I was trying to talk. And, and he was just, it was just was not working. And so after about, about 10 minutes into the sermon, uh, the, I, the father finally decided, either by his own choosing or by his wife's insistence, began to pick up the boy and was going to take him out. And, and, and they were walking down this aisle in the back, and the church at that, where we were in at that time was a little bit smaller, had a very low ceiling, and the acoustics were very live. And he's walking out the back, and the whole way from the front of the church all the way to the back, out the back doors, this little boy was saying, Dad, what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me, Dad? Dad, what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me, Dad? Dad, what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me, Dad? The whole way. Well, we all, we all, we all did what you just did, too. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that Dad wasn't doing anything to that kid. I suspect that question is at the heart of our hesitancy. Father, what are you going to do to me? What, what are you going to do to me, Father? 
But I don't know if I like where this is headed. What are you going to do to me? Father, I'm not sure I, 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 I like what's happening with this, and I don't really want to take that. What are you going to do to me? But somewhere in all of that question, God's calling us to trust him. Because he's good, and he's loving, and he wants only what is best for us. And that's why he's saying, come and risk with me. Gracious Father, we want to be people who who live lives of risk with you. Who follow as you lead. Who go where you want us to go, stay where you want us to stay. Who simply live trusting you. Father, give us courage. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.